situation with regard to the development of the autocephaly of the Orthodox Church in America. And Father Mark asked if I might do a just a brief recapitulation of the major, major players uh, again here so that you kind of understand uh, what's happening. Remember we have the Greek Archdiocese, uh, which is headed at this time, this is late 1960s that we're at, by Archbishop Yakovus. We have the uh, Antiochian Archdiocese, which by the late 1960s, beginning 1966, was headed by Metropolitan Philip. We have the uh, uh, Russian Metropolia, the, called the Russian Orthodox Greek Catholic Church in America, headed in the late 1960s, beginning 1965, by Metropolitan Irenae. Uh, we have a, a number of uh, other jurisdictions that are affiliated with the Ecumenical Patriarchate, like the Ukrainians that are under the Ecumenical Patriarchate, the Carpathian Russians. Uh, and there are also some uh, other non-Russian groups, like the, the, the Romanian Episcopate that in 1960 associated itself with the uh, Russian Orthodox Greek Catholic Church in America, and the uh, and Albanian diocese uh, that is associated with them, and so on. Um, Okay, so we have, uh, is that helpful enough, at least in, in that kind of uh, recapitulation? The, uh, as I was pointing out, the situation for the, the Russian diocese, the Rus Russian Orthodox Greek Catholic Church in America, also known as the Russian Metropolia, same organization, uh, was becoming uh, difficult to maintain uh, by the by the mid 1960s for for a couple of reasons. One, the church was uh, finding itself being much more of a an American uh, church rather than and its identity was they were seeing themselves as American rather than simply as a, a Russian immigrant church. Secondly, uh, a temporary autonomy from uh, one's canonical patriarchal source had now stretched on for 40 years and it was getting to be a little bit problematic uh, even for uh, the defenders of that situation to say that this is the, the right canonical situation that we should, we should stay in, particularly since by the 1960s uh, the, the Patriarchate of Moscow was at least being allowed to exist and to function uh, with a little bit more uh, freedom. The, pa the Patriarch was allowed to send representatives to World Council of Churches meetings and, and things like that. Communication was a little bit better. Phone systems seemed to work occasionally. Um, and, and those kinds of, of things meant that there needed to be some sort of, of uh, at least discussion about normalizing the, the situation. Uh, and uh, further, other jurisdictions looking at the Russian Metropolia were not sure whether they were canonical or not. You know, as I mentioned, the Ecumenical Patriarch said, you know, you really need to get this squared away back in, uh, you know, back in Russia rather than, uh, you know, rather than coming coming to me. So uh, that's the situation they found them found themselves in. Now, what they didn't want, though, uh, because of the political situation at the time. Remember, the Soviet Union uh, in 1960, in spite of the, the loosening and so forth, still was a communist state in which uh, one, we, we must be blunt and honest, Christians were suffering, you know. Uh, Christians were, you know, were uh, oppressed. Uh, in the 1930s, I didn't even talk about this at all, but in the 1930s, the Russian Orthodox Church was virtually annihilated by the uh, communist authorities. About 40 million Orthodox Christians died in the, at the hands of, of Stalin in that, uh, those incredible gulags and, and uh, purges that took place. Of 300 and some bishops that were alive at the time of the Russian Revolution, uh, there were uh, just you know 15 or 16 by the end of the 1930s, uh, that's that's an incredible, an incredible devastation. Seeing all of that, the American uh, uh, Russian community didn't want to subject themselves to a patriarch uh, completely, whom they feared might be controlled by the Soviet machine. Yeah, you see, you understand that feeling. 
the fear that's there, and a genuine fear. But at the same time, they had to somehow spiritually and canonically be related uh, there. And they, in fact, commemorated the patriarch as the head of their, uh, of their church. But how can you do that and not really actually be related to them somehow? So what uh, was envisioned was to establish a relationship that at minimum had uh, autonomy. That is, we'd be spiritually under the patriarchate, but we ha would have a, a self-governing autonomous status. Now, here's a couple of terms that you need to um, understand there in, in terms of degrees. Orthodox churches are set up as uh, either um, autocephalous churches, as autonomous churches, or as dependent churches. Dependent is my term. Um, I don't know what the technical term might be, but it's good enough, right? Um, an autocephalous church is a church that governs itself. It has the right to uh, elect its own uh, either patriarch or metropolitan, its own bishops, without recourse to approval from any other church. It's self-governing. Literally, the word means self-headed, autocephalous. Now, in the Orthodox world, there are a number of autocephalous churches. The Patriarchate of Antioch is an autocephalous church. The, pa the uh, Patriarchate of Moscow, uh, Romania, uh, uh, Greece, um, Poland, Czechoslovakia uh, are, are autocephalous churches, um, Serbia, uh, and so on. The second level is autonomous, that is, having a range of self-government, in other words, operating freely in their own day-to-day -day operations. They don't have to check everything back with the mother church uh, at, every, at every moment. But if a new head is going to be chosen, like a new metropolitan or something like that, that person has to be approved by the mother church somewhere back there. So that would grant a a uh, self-governing state, and the finances are governed all in the autonomous church rather than, you know, being set back and determined by that, that mother church and so forth. Now, dependent church, everything runs back home, one level or another. You know, they may grant a degree of independence to, you know, diocese and so forth, but the ultimate authority rests back in the, uh, you know, back in the mother, in the mother church. So the trick for the, uh, the Russian metropolia was to get at least an autonomous status from the Patriarchate of Moscow, but the only way to really solve the situation would be to get an autocephalus, a self-governing uh, status. And in fact, that was the situation that the, the uh, bishops and clergy, uh, and even the people, really, of the uh, Russian metropolia in the 1960s believed they had. They believed that they were an American church. They were not an, Im an immigrant uh, community any, any longer, primarily. They believed that they, they wanted to be able to choose their own bishops without interference from uh, Moscow and, and, uh, and so forth. So they decided that they would press for, uh, if, if there was any response at all positively toward that, for autocephaly rather than for autonomy. The hope was then that if they could achieve a, uh, an autocephalous, a self-governing status of their church in the United States, that other, these other jurisdictions, would the mother churches would also grant their local churches autocephaly that could be joined to this one, and then we would have a self-governing autocephalous American Orthodox Church. Do you understand the, the rationale that is, that is behind that? So uh, as I uh, said in the last hour, Metropolitan Irenae attempted at first to get a pan-Orthodox approach to this. That's always the, the preferable thing, you know, if you're, is to get everybody to agree to, to do this. And, and the bishops of Scoba had uh, themselves gone on record as having uh, wanted that. Um, just a
brief aside here, Dr. John told me something at the break that I thought was rather unique, that the impetus for the original gathering together of the scope of bishops came from another outside the church source. They were asked by the Boy Scouts of America to uh, gather at New Brunswick, New Jersey to talk about a scouting program, a joint Orthodox scouting program, which they did in 1956, Dr. John said. And having all gotten together to talk with the Boy Scouts in New Brunswick, they said, why don't we do this again? And they met together uh, and formed, formed SCOBA then just four years later in 1960. Uh, isn't that incredible? <laughs> um, so anyway, and the Orthodox Christian Education Commission also then offered itself uh, to place itself under the auspices of SCOBA uh, at that particular point. And subsequently, SCOBA has done a number of other cooperative projects like International Orthodox Christian Charities and, and things like that. But I thought that was humorous that the, the uh, I didn't know that either, that the, the Boy Scouts were, you know, I was a Boy Scout when I was a kid, so, you know, that, another reason to like Boy Scouts, I guess. All right, so we have the, the uh, Metropolitan Irenae trying to get this, this pan- Orthodox approach, but he was rebuffed and told to go back to Moscow. Well, okay, Metropolitan Irenae and the other bishops of the, uh, the uh, Russian Metropolia said, we will, uh, uh, we will do that. So over the course of the next couple of years, 1968, 1969, um, there were some um, feelers that were granted, uh, that were given, uh, that, that would try to warm up the relationship. One, a uh, telegram was sent by a Metropolitan Irenae and the Church in America in 1968 to Patriarch Alexis to congratulate him on the 50th anniversary of the reestablishment of the Patriarchate in, uh, in, in Moscow. And that was a kind of a signal that we should start to normalizing and, and uh, warming up these, these relationships. Patriarch Alexis responded um, positively and uh, sent back a telegram affirming his love for the, the flock in North America and that sort of thing. And so finally, you have some form of official communication, albeit this kind of congratulate, congratulatory thing, with, between the Patriarch and Metropolitan Irenae. In January of 1969, uh, Metropolitan Nicodem from the uh, Patriarchate of Moscow came to the United States and had unofficial discussions with uh, Metropolitan Irenae and his advisors. His advisors uh, included some folks that you know, um, including Father Alexander. Um, the uh, They set up a, an official meeting to take place in Geneva in August of 1969. And at that meeting, uh, over the course of about a week, uh, substantial agreement was reached on some fundamental issues. First of all, uh, the, it was agreed that orthodox canonical unity in a given territory is based on the principle of a single hierarchy through which the orthodox faithful are united with the ecumenical orthodox church. That's point one. In other words, in order to have unity, canonical unity, uh, there has on a, in a geographic territory, there has to be one hierarchy. Principle number two that they agreed on. The Russian Orthodox Church was responsible for bringing orthodoxy to America at the end of the 18th century and until 1922, with the founding of the Greek Archdiocese of North America, there was only one hierarchy on American territory, and that was the hierarchy of the Russian um, mission. Further, the jurisdictional pluralism, which uh, developed after 1922, is a temporary phenomenon which cannot serve as a model or a basis for uh, the canonical church in North America. In other words, it's a, it's a temporary anomaly that is due to historic circumstances and can't represent a way that uh, the church should be organized in, in any time uh, period, really, uh, for a per on a permanent basis. Fourthly, 
they uh, recognized that due to the fact that orthodoxy is now the faith of many Native Americans rather than just immigrants, the time had come to establish uh, an autocephalous Orthodox Church uh, in America. The fifth principle was that the North American metropolia, although estranged from the mother church by external circumstances, has always regarded herself as uh, coming from the roots of the Russian church and therefore provides the basis for a, a, to be a natural nucleus for an autocephalous church. In other words, uh, the agreement was that that uh, diocese represented the living continuation of the Russian mission that had begun in 1794 uh, in this end uh, of the world. And so on the basis of those five uh, principles, the direction was clear. The Moscow Patriarchate was uh, willing on that basis uh, potentially to offer self-governing status to the, the metropolia in the United States as a, uh, an autocephalous Orthodox Church. Now, there are a couple of problems that weren't resolved uh, at that uh, time. The status of the Orthodox Church in, in Japan and the status of the 30-some patriarchal parishes that existed in the United States at the same time. Remember, we had those two, had those jurisdictions, the Moscow Patriarchate had 30-some parishes that it ruled in the United States, plus uh, the status then of the, the churches in Japan. Um, another meeting was set up uh, that would uh, take place in November in Tokyo. And so uh, the representatives of the Metropolia and representatives of uh, the Moscow Patriarchate and obviously the church in Japan would also be represented at a meeting in Tokyo, uh, took place and they hoped that they could resolve the, uh, the matters there. Now in Tokyo, the two remaining obstacles were overcome. The Japanese uh, church was granted an autonomous status and would remain under the Moscow Patriarchate. It wouldn't be connected to the other um, the American situation. However, uh, what would happen with the, the patriarchal parishes would be that uh, all of those that wanted to uh, transfer to the uh, new autocephalous church would be allowed to do so. If any parishes specifically wanted to remain directly under the patriarchate of Moscow, that should be allowed uh, until such time as uh, this whole anomalous situation in America gets resolved and then and then those parishes would become part of the autocephalous uh, American Orthodox Church too. In other words, it was a, um, a, an expedient for the moment that we, we recognize that emotions run high in these kind of things and therefore we'll let those that want to stay with Moscow stay with Moscow. But if they want to join into the new uh, autocephalous church, they would be allowed to do that. On, on uh, that basis, uh, the, uh, well, and in fact, then, the title of the uh, patriarchal exarchate would be abolished. In other words, the, the Moscow patriarch would no longer have an exarch in the United States, but rather it would be just the patriarchal parishes of the Moscow patriarchate. Do you understand the difference there? An exarch is the one who officially represents a, um, a patriarch in another location and carries with him the authority of that patriarch. Uh, Metropolitan Philip, for example, is the patriarchal exarch of the uh, Patriarch of Antioch in the United States. Um, Archbishop Spiridon, I believe, Archbishop Byakovitz was for sure, but I believe that Archbishop Spiridon at the moment carries the authority of his patriarchal exarch of the ecumenical patriarch in the United States. But if you remove that title, then he's just over these parishes and doesn't represent uh, the authority of the Moscow Patriarchate over any other churches. And the supreme ecclesiastic authority in the autocephaly then would be the head of the new autocephalous church. Is that, are you, you understand where we're at with that? Okay, so the foundation of the agreement then was, was uh, uh, reached in, uh, and on December 6, 1969, the Metropolia Chancery issued a 
a formal statement uh, regarding the negotiations, uh, positively noting that they were uh, going on, but noting that there were still a few details uh, that had to be uh, worked out. In March of 1970, Metropolitan Nicodem came to New York, uh, and on the 31st of March, a full agreement was reached, and the document of agreement was signed by Metropolitan Nicodem on behalf of the Moscow Patriarchate and by Metropolitan Irenae uh, on behalf of the Russian Orthodox Greek Catholic Church of uh, North America. Now, I've outlined some of the, the uh, criteria that were uh, involved in that. On the uh, 8th of April, 1970, at a meeting of the uh, Senate of the Russian Orthodox Church, presided over by Patriarch Alexis, after hearing a uh, written petition of Metropolitan Irenae and the Council of Bishops of the Metropolia requesting that they be granted the autocephalous, the status of the autocephalous Orthodox Church in America, uh, uh, the, they decided that it was that since it was the desire of the North American Episcopate to end the schism and have its status regularized, that the interdiction that the patriarch had issued against the hierarchy and um, of the metropolia were uh, lifted. Uh, and further, it was uh, agreed to uh, take the question of autocephaly up specifically the next day at a uh, meeting of the, the Holy Synod. In other words, one day they said, all right, we've reestablished the proper relationship between this diocese and the Moscow Patriarchate. From the Patriarch's point of view, we lifted their, their, uh, the uh, disciplinary action that we proclaimed in 1947. From the Metropolitan's point of view, that they didn't think that that was legal anyway. So, but, you know, if you're going to lift it, that's okay. <laughs> you see what I mean? So then they took it up the next day, which would be on the 9th of April of uh, uh, 1970. Finally, on April the 10th, the Patriarch and the Synod agreed to approve the agreement reached on March the 31st, and the Patriarchal and Synodal Tomos of Autocephaly was signed by uh, Patriarch Alexis and the members of the Holy Synod. Uh, so officially, then, the autocephaly was, was uh, granted as of uh, April the 10th, 1970. On the 18th of May, 1970, uh, the tomos of autocephaly was officially given um, by the guardian of the patriarchal throne, Metropolitan Piemann. Uh, ironically, I guess, the patriarch Alexis died in the time between April 10th and May 18th, 1970, and uh, Piman, who was the guardian of the throne, the locum tenens, uh, became the one who officially uh, delivered the document of uh, autocephaly. However, lest one get worried about that, he became the next patriarch. And uh, so it was, in other words, I don't think that he disagreed with the, the judgment of, uh, that was given before. Um, on, uh, as I was saying, on the 18th of May, uh, the official tomos was delivered to the representatives of the Autocephalous Orthodox Church in America, Bishop Theodosius of Alaska, who uh, is now Metropolitan Theodosius, the, the uh, head of the Orthodox Church in America. Um, the ambassador to the United, of the U.S. to the Soviet Union was present at the, uh, at the uh, ceremony. So with that, the Russian Orthodox Greek Catholic Church in America received self-governing autocephalous uh, status from the uh, church of, from her mother church, the uh, Patriarchate of, of uh, Moscow. Later that same year, at the All-American Sobor, the official change was uh, made in the name of the church, and it became the Orthodox Church in America. Orthodox Church in America. So what you mostly know as the OCA, that is this, this uh, uh, group. The response was uh, mixed, that the church um, got to its autocephaly. Some uh, churches supported the autocephaly, notably the church in uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, uh, the Autonomous Church of Japan, 
Uh, also, there were some uh, dioceses, like the Romanian uh, Episcopate in the United States, that was already part of the uh, uh, that organization that continued to be a part of it and became an ethnic diocese within the uh, Orthodox Church in America. The OCA was structured very much along the lines of Tikhon's original uh, vision. You remember geographic dioceses with also ethnic dioceses that would be non-geographic for certain, uh, certain groups. So you have an Albanian group in the, in the OCA, uh, um, Romanian and so forth. Uh, and however, the uh, response to this was not very strong. Archbishop Jacobus, uh, in the in the uh, weeks right before the the uh, proclamation of the autocephaly, convened a meeting of Scoba, uh, January or February of 1970, to discuss this whole thing. And, and Archbishop Jacobus was trying to get a kind of a postponement of, of that action in order to allow for a broader-based uh, autocephaly to occur. Now, it was clear that Yakovus was supportive of the idea of an autocephalous American Orthodox Church. What he was a little bit more skittish about was whether or not that could be a, a, attained through Moscow granting autocephaly. Uh, I think he knew very well that Athenagoras back in Constantinople, wasn't going to buy this because he thought that uh, the only, only the ecumenical patriarch has the authority to declare autocephaly or perhaps a, 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 um, a pan-Orthodox council of all of the churches would have the authority to grant autocephaly, but not a single autocephalous church. Now, historians have been arguing about this for uh, many years. Father Meyendorf argues that it is the press, the... Uh, that is within the canonical rights of a, an autocephalous church to grant autocephaly to her uh, daughter church, and in fact, no one else can do that. Uh, in fact, other autocephalous churches like Czechoslovakia and Poland and so forth were uh, granted by their mother church and recognized grudgingly by Constantinople 50, 70, 80 years later. And so what the, the hope of the OCA was at, at the outset was that Constantinople may grumble now, but later they'll come around and uh, recognize that. Um, however, uh, the church, the OCA uh, has not been recognized uh, in the sense of uh, having other, the other churches join it uh, by the Serbians, the Antiochians, the ecumenical patriarchate and, and so forth. Although at first, uh, Metropolitan Phillips seemed to be inclined to, um, to do that. Uh, I, in fact, uh, according to the, the things I read, the um, uh, convention in, what, 1971, uh, Dr. John, maybe you were there, um, voted to go ahead and unite with that, with, with the, uh, or pursue it anyway, with the with the OCA, but that nothing ever really came of that over. Formally, okay. Yeah. Eighty-five. Okay. Okay. So, in any event, the the reception, uh, in, in effect, Constantinople. Uh, at, period, at periods has ordered their clergy not to celebrate with OCA clergy and not to be in communion with them because this was an uncanonical action. For his part, Archbishop Yakovus, uh, you know, on, was inconsistent. Uh, sometimes he would uh, not enforce that sort of thing. Other times there would not be uh, concelebration between the OCA and, and the Greeks. And, 
Sunday of Orthodoxy sometimes become rather uh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> however, in the in recent years, that kind of thing has has backed off a bit. When um, um, uh, Bartholomew, the Patriarch Bartholomew, the Ecumenical Patriarch, was here in the United States when just a year or two ago, uh, he went uh, and served with Metropolitan Theodosius, or vice versa. Uh, so. At least that's a, a tacit sacramental recognition that there's some sort of legitimate uh, status uh, with, with that, but how that's all uh, a new situation that would include the autocephaly of the uh, Orthodox Church in America and establish an Ameri autocephalous American Orthodox Church. For example, if the Patriarchate of Antioch would grant the Antiochian Archdiocese autocephaly, which would be joined, could be joined with another one that would, or the Greek archdiocese autocephaly, and join that together, then we would have some kind of a, a firm foundation. The, the OCA has been accused of um, trying to exert a hegemony over the whole, whole rest of uh, or the Orthodox world by this act. I don't think that was the motivation at all. Uh, I think that they were trying to, first of all, correct the situation that they uh, we're in, and secondly, provide a vehicle. I think they honestly believe it was a vehicle by which Orthodox unity could eventually take place in the United States, and uh, in the long run, that still may prove to be, you know, part of the uh, part of part of the solution. Um, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Now. Uh, I just have a few more minutes. I want to do to uh, allow some uh, questions too, but I want to throw in one more little story that comes after this, starting in 1970 uh, something or another. Uh, that's our story uh, of the Evangelical Orthodox Church. One of the most, I believe, one of the most significant events in Orthodoxy in the last portion of the 20th century. We had the grace of God uh, to participate in, and that was uh, when a group of erstwhile Protestants looking for worship, looking for the experience of, uh, uh, of true worship, uh, looking for doctrine that really was true and substantive, uh, found ourselves reading the fathers of the church and being taught the Orthodox faith. And this began, of course, as you know, in the 1970s. Some of you were here in Eagle River experiencing uh, that, whole, that whole journey uh, along with, with the uh, rest of us. When we uh, began to discover that we were orthodox in thinking in the mid-1970s, that is, we came to accept the faith of the seven ecumenical councils, we looked around ourselves, as Father Peter put it, we asked ourselves, is there a church like this alive anywhere. Well, our initial contact came through a priest of the Orthodox Church in America, Father uh, Thaddeus Wojcik, who at the time was at uh, St. Innocent's in Tarzana, uh, California. And as Father John mentioned the other night, he literally, uh, he had been called by Father Alexander Schmemann and told about uh, our group of uh, people up at Santa Barbara and told to go, that he should go visit these folks. And so he went on up to Santa Barbara, knocked on the door, said, here I am, who are you, kind of, uh, kind of thing, and began uh, putting flesh and blood on the real live Orthodox uh, uh, world. Well, over the course of the next several years, the journey of the EOC was guided largely by people who were part of the uh, OCA. Father John Mayendorf, Father Alexander Schmemann, both made trips to uh, Goleta and uh, worked with uh, our bishops, also um, um, Father Thomas Hopko uh, came out there, Bishop Dimitri uh, from the south. By the way, uh, Bishop Dimitri is an interesting character himself. Uh, remember that little Ukrainian diocese that had six parishes, jo Joseph Zook's Ukrainian diocese under the... Bishop Dimitri became an Orthodox Christian. He was a Southern Baptist. And he became an Orthodox Christian in one of those Ukrainian churches and uh, then eventually transferred to uh, the Russian Metropolia and uh, became a, a bishop in the uh, Orthodox Church in America. So those little 
side sort of churches do have significant impact on, uh, on the uh, Orthodox world as a whole. Anyway, that was a sign, an aside. Uh, and and uh, that <coughs> negotiate, the, the discussions from the OCA, uh, particularly Father Alexander, taught us a great deal about uh, the, the, the Orthodox faith. We attended 1980 the All-American Sobor of the uh, Orthodox Church in America. Father John and I were both uh, present at uh, that meeting in Detroit. And, uh, you know, it was both a, a learning experience and uh, culture shock and, and uh, I mean, you know, I, I hard to describe it. Uh, but uh, we were positively impressed with orthodoxy, though. One of the most amazing things to me, and this will sound kind of small, but uh, we had divine liturgy that day. And believe it or not, this was, that was the first time I'd ever seen the entire uh, full-blown uh, liturgy of St. John Chrysostom done uh, anywhere. And it was the full-blown Russian version that took two and a half hours to do. Uh, and, but one of the things that struck me was we got to the prayer before communion. I believe, O Lord, and I confess that you are truly the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I was just blown away by the fact that this entire room filled with people would say that prayer together by memory. Uh, and it just is like, these people know this service. It's not just something they walk through and, and you know, pretend they're going through the motions. They, they know this, they love this, they pray this, and maybe I ought to perk up my attention just a, just a little bit. That was a, a, a very fascinating kind of a thing. Well, one of the things that Father Alexander told us, as I mentioned in the first lecture, was that we had to get to know the other jurisdictions. Orthodoxy isn't just that uh, that jurisdiction. So that actually was how I got to be here today because I, I took him at his word and said, okay, let's study this as well as actually get to know people. So we began to dialogue with other Orthodox uh, people. The uh, Greek archdiocese, particularly through um, uh, now Metropolitan Maximus of Pittsburgh, uh, we uh, began to uh, meet with other Orthodox people in the communities that we lived. I remember walking into a, uh, the Greek parish just down the street from us, a thousand-member parish. They were having a conference that day, and eight or ten Greek priests there, and, and I just walked in and introduced myself, and uh, uh, they treated me very, very well uh, and began to develop relationships with, uh, with them. Well, over the course of, uh, of years, of course, we developed from being this loose confederation of, of Orthodox church, of, of uh, Protestant-oriented kind of churches to being uh, living uh, out as best we could, uh, churches that lived out as best we could the Orthodox faith. In fact, Father Alexander Juliana said the other night, came home and said, they're Orthodox, but they don't know it yet. Yeah. And we tried, we, you know, we Honestly, we're doing uh, the best we could, but we came to a crossroads where we knew that we needed to uh, enter into sacramental union with the rest of the church. This issue that Father John has been talking about is of the utmost importance because uh, we discovered that we were like this finger cut off sitting out there, and we might have a form of life. We might have the nature, as he put it last night, but we weren't connected to the living essence of of the church, and somehow that, that had to happen. So we tried abortively, if you re recall, in 1985, we went to, just like Metropolitan Irenae, we went to Constantinople, different patriarchs, same result. Uh, we weren't even allowed to talk to him. But unlike Father, Father John's emotion, I'm not so upset about that, because I just interpreted it as that's what God wanted. And then three days after we got back, uh, his holiness, his beatitude, I should say, um, Ignatius uh, IV uh, of Antioch began the process of opening the door, uh, the door for us. And uh, in 1987, then Metropolitan Philip uh, received into the Antiochian Archdiocese 20 or so parishes with approximately 2,000 and that's not an inflated number. A lot of Orthodox numbers are inflated. That one's not. Um, about 2,000 people in, in, into the church and ordained uh, the clergy, including 
all of us, uh, Father John, Father Mark, and myself, Father Harold. And uh, that was a very, very courageous thing for Metropolitan Philip to do. You have to understand how much pressure he got. The Greek uh, community was afraid of uh, accepting us because they were uh, afraid of the uh, impact it would have upon the ethnic ethos of the uh, Greek Orthodox Church. The OCA would probably have, have uh, been relatively comfortable place for us to be, but they didn't know what to do us, with us either. You know, uh, they weren't sure we were Orthodox. Some were really for us. Perhaps if Father Alexander had lived, that, that door would have been much more strongly open to us, but it just wasn't uh, working there. But in, uh, in a situation in which there was a lot of, of uh, potential uh, criticism, Metropolitan Philip took the courageous step and brought us into uh, the Orthodox Church. And uh, he took a great chance. Uh, as a result, the character, in many respects, of the Antiochian Archdiocese has changed over the last uh, decade. For example, the great majority, about 65% to 70% of the clergy in the Antiochian Archdiocese are convert clergy. That's a significant difference. The number of parishes has significantly increased. Now, I can't, we can't attribute all of that to the AUM because Metropolitan Philip has been every bit the, the uh, dynamic, energetic, uh, outgoing kind of leader that his predecessor, Metropolitan Anthony, was. Uh, when when uh, Metropolitan Philip took uh, the throne, there were 65 uh, or so churches in the New York uh, diocese. Uh, if you add to that, I guess the 18 or so in Toledo, that would be 83 or so total. And there are now 220 by the time we came in in 1987, there were 120 uh, different churches. So that meant that, that it had grown by about 40 churches over that um, period of time from 1966 to 1986. And then in the last 10 years, it's gone from 130 to 220. Now that's an incredible percentage uh, in increase in growth. A lot of these churches are missions that were started uh, or other churches that were uh, encouraged to come in by the example that was set by uh, Metropolitan Philip in receiving uh, us. Some of it is, is the direct work of people that were involved in our, in, in our whole journey. But the, the point is the Antiochian Archdiocese in this last uh, part of the 20th century has become, uh, so to speak, a hotbed for uh, Orthodox mission and evangelistic outreach. Um, uh, that's not to say that the other jurisdictions aren't jumping along. In fact, the uh, Greek archdiocese's uh, efforts are uh, spectacular, particularly outside of the United States. They haven't been so strong domestically, uh, but the, the Orthodox Christian Mission Center in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, has done tremendous work uh, in other parts of, of the world, uh, in India, in uh, Africa, in um, in the Far East, in the Middle East, and, and uh, Mexico, and, and so on. And uh, many of you should check out the programs of the, or the mission things of the Orthodox Christian Mission Center. That would be a, a good. But I, I, I think the spirit of uh, that we really can and should uh, reach out, that we can reach out, that we can be uh, something other than an ethnic ghetto, as Metropolitan Philip called it, uh, is, is really entering into the Orthodox Church uh, in uh, the United States and in Canada at, at this particular time. So I actually think that there's going to be a kind of a grassroots development and, and, uh, and change over the next 30 or 40 years that's going, going to be very positive. The Greek Archdiocese, I predict, will find itself with the same kind of situation in a number of years that the Antiochians and the uh, Russians did 40 years ago. That is, we're no longer an immigrant church. So uh, up till now, the Greeks have had waves of immigration, uh, even recent waves of immigration with people coming here. And that, uh, I had one Greek priest tell me, every time I think we're making progress, we get new immigration and it sets us back 20 years. Uh, and, and 
20, by that I mean 20 years in terms of developing a mission of focusing out to the, the uh, American community in which they find themselves. They still have their mission of caring for their thousands of families in their parishes, and I'm not, I, please, please, I don't mean to disparage that at all. But I, I, I think organically the situation will change. So in 2020 or 2030, uh, you know, the orthodox situation in America will, will look considerably different. And um, will there be unity? Well, that will depend on a number of things. So it will depend on that kind of process taking place, on conversion, I think bringing many uh, non-traditionally ethnic orthodox, uh, people into the Orthodox Church will reassert an ecclesiastical identity rather than an, an ethnic identity. And then third, we need some more Archbishop Michaels. Do you understand what I mean? Some people that are humble enough to give up their positions of power and wealth and authority and in exchange for the satisfaction of knowing they brought unity to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and they sacrificed that for the sake of the mission, not so much for uh, not living for their own, maintaining their, their, their own kingdom. Sometimes we as, as uh, pastors need to lay our lives down for the flock, and that means our hierarchs sometimes are going to have to lay down their lives, so to speak, for the, the flock. I... Uh, this is personal note, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but, uh, uh, you know, sometimes a priest might discover that, that the situation might be better if you get out of the way. I had a parish in Indiana that I founded, spent 17 years there. I sweat blood. I fought and uh, built a church there, and I ran out of gas. And so I went to another place to try to do that again. You know what happened to that place back there? <laughs> Good grief. Started growing. They started, you know, di discovering the, the wealth and riches of orthodoxy. And by golly, that's a more healthy parish now than it was before. Now, to be fair to myself, you know, I laid a foundation upon which another, another is building. But if I had held on to it, and tried to just preserve that life there at all costs, then it probably would have killed both of us, me and the parish. But you let go of it, and you follow the Spirit of God where he leads, and let, and let God take care of that. Well, that's the same kind of spirit, I think, that some of the hierarchs and the leaders of our churches uh, in America need to have. Uh, you know, that, that we don't preserve an institution at all costs. We preserve the Orthodox faith, the sacramental unity of, uh, of the church, the living body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that's exciting. And I think, I, you know, I'm an optimist about that. I, God is undeterred by our human weakness. He can and will build his holy church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, any questions? Yes, sir. Well, yes, or finding some way to join together. I, I should mention, for example, the, all these Ukrainian dioceses that we talked about. In the 1990s, four out of those five Ukrainian dioceses have been united the, uh, under the ecumenical patriarchate. Uh, and so that's a sign, I think, that, that that sort of thing begins to happen, including this uh, Ukrainian Greek Orthodox Church in Canada uh, was brought into that. And so there's a new Orthodox seminary in Canada that's part of at St. Andrews in Winnipeg, which is now part of the canonical uh, you know, churches. But yes, I do think that. Also, um, just as a side note, the Serbian church, which had split in 1960, I didn't even talk about that, but they split in 1960 into two dioceses over this patriarch controlled by communists versus free situation and some other things. That's a rather dirty situation. But anyway, they fought for 30 years, but in 1991 or two, they reunited and uh, established a single Serbian uh, diocese in the United States uh, uh, again. So there's Boshin like that. Now, if, if 
let's say our, the Antiochian Archdiocese would, I know this is on tape, uh, if Metropolitan Philip hears this, I hope he takes this in the right way. He, uh, you know, if he would do a bold, make a bold stroke, if the uh, Patriarch of Antioch would take a bold stroke and, and grant autocephaly and unite with the uh, Orthodox Church in America, that might start a trend toward unity that would be almost unstoppable. Yeah, or something, yeah. Pick out, yeah, yeah. Or the, the little guys coming together somehow, you know, and that's... Well, that depends on who you're talking to, you know. <laughs> All right, here. Uh, I was just wondering, and this may be too big of a subject to speak in a question answer session, but um, I was wondering if you could speak a, a little bit about the French Orthodox Church. We had, or I have a friend who had gotten involved a little bit there, and, and I had some questions and was only getting answers kind of from one side, and that. It was really just a political thing, and uh, reconciliation was just around the corner, and used to be in communion with the Romanian church or something like that. And it seemed a little confusing to me, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on that. Yeah. But would that uh, be more for the end of the Okay. Yeah. That, that involves the whole situation in Western Europe, which is awfully, uh, <laughs> awfully, okay. awfully confusing. And I'd have to get a little bit more information. I'm somewhat familiar with that, but not enough to where I feel like I can just, off the top of my head, say that. But there was a rupture, and it was under the Patriarchate of Romania, and then things happened. But, yeah. Yeah, they don't, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay, any other questions? Tomorrow what I want to deal with is some of the uh, issues that, that involve churches like the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. There are a number of uh, traditionalist uh, churches, old calendar uh, churches and so forth that are under the, in the general ethos of Orthodoxy. I want to talk about those issues and uh, some, of those, uh, some of those groups, but particularly I'll trace a little of the history of, of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia and how it fits into, uh, into this. That's my topic for, for tomorrow. Thank you very much.